Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Quote, it felt like Armageddon. The lead starts right now. A new baby, one of the thousands of innocent people killed earlier today in that catastrophic 7.8 magnitude earthquake that rocked Turkey and Syria. The scramble to reach the people buried alive beneath crumbled buildings. Then, we're learning more about China's suspected spy balloon shot down after flying over the United States for days, including concerns that the balloon may have had explosives on board, plus arrests in a neo-Nazi plot to completely destroy a major American city by targeting electrical substations. The details coming up on the wild and violent conspiracy. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead, the frantic search for survivors after the devastating earthquake that so far has killed more than 3,400 people a number that tragically continues to grow seemingly every hour. The 7.8 magnitude earthquake striking Turkey and Syria earlier this morning, powerful aftershocks complicating the rescue efforts, making things even more difficult. Some of the areas are under winter weather warnings for snow and high winds and very low temperatures. Turkish President Erdogan today pleading for other countries to send their most experienced search and rescue teams There's currently really no way to assess even a rough idea of how many people are missing right now, trapped under these giant piles of concrete and twisted metal. Videos captured the moment this building collapsed in central Turkey today. This was one of the strongest earthquakes to hit the region in more than 100 years. Now, there have been some moments of hope today. This video, shared by the White Helmets volunteer group, shows rescuers pulling a young boy out of the rubble in northwest Syria. CNN's Jamana Karache starts off our coverage today from Istanbul, Turkey, where the country's leaders have declared a week of national warning. We want to warn you, of course, some of this material may be difficult to watch. Flattened in seconds. Moments later, two aftershocks. <laughs> a Turkish TV crew reporting live during the makings of an apocalyptic scene. The reporter grabbing a young girl as the rubble and smoke settles around them. Rescue efforts beginning immediately. In southern Turkey, a young man trapped. Desperation in his eyes. Then in the pre-dawn darkness, a moment of joy. Hauled from the wreckage. This was a residential building full of families asleep in their homes when the massive earthquake struck. I was sleeping when my wife suddenly woke me up. The quake was very severe, very scary. It took almost two minutes until the shaking stopped. As the hours go by, more rescues. Hospitals also begin to overflow. Reported deaths going up by the hundreds each hour. Millions impacted. In Syria, a father cries over his baby's limp body. Many children among the killed and injured. 
It's unclear just how many are still trapped and how many have lost their lives. There are 12 families and no one managed to get out. They are all inside here. The White Helmets have done this before. Heroes of the Syrian civil war now pulling people out from under a very different disaster. So many in rebel-held northern Syria had very little yesterday. People will be left with nothing today. In Turkey, too, foreign help will be needed. World leaders are already pledging and deploying rescue teams. The search and rescue will stretch on for days, hope remaining as long as possible. And Jake, search and rescue operations are continuing into the night, but they are dealing with really challenging conditions right now. Of course, nightfall uh, has slowed down the uh, search and rescue operations. You've got the weather. It is freezing. It is snowing. You've got roads that are blocked. And then you've got these powerful aftershocks, more than 130, according uh, to Turkish officials, also making this extremely challenging for them. And as the international community is rushing to provide Turkey with the aid and support, it has requested uh, people in northwestern Syria in uh, the rebel-controlled parts uh, of uh, northern uh, Syria, desperately calling on the international uh, community, uh, saying not to forget them. This is a population that has gone through so much, Jake, as you know, over the years, and people there have absolutely nothing, and they really need all the help and support they can get right now. Jamana Karacha uh, in Istanbul, Turkey. Thank you so much. Uh, joining us now is Khan Sonner with the Turkish Red Crescent. That's part of the International Red Cross. Khan, thanks for joining us. What, what are the biggest needs on the ground right now? Yeah, uh, as Turkish Red Crescent Society, we are very much focusing on the uh, coverage of the basic needs, uh, such as blankets and the provision of foods, because uh, we are at the very initial stage of the response. So we are trying to uh, protect uh, people from uh, harsh winter conditions. That's why uh, we are uh, dispatching, I mean, uh, blankets uh, and other non-food items from our stocks to the affected area. Uh, As you know, I mean, uh, the uh, area uh, is composed of uh, 10 provinces. So uh, our, uh, we disperse our teams Uh, to dispatch these relief items, and they are now distributing to the people. For our viewers who might not be familiar with this region, what can you tell us about the areas that were hardest hit? Yeah, the areas, the hardest hit areas uh, is uh, Marash province, and uh, also there are other areas affected by earthquake, and these areas around uh, Marash province. Uh, I mean, basically, these areas are mountainous and the uh, altitude is high and the winter conditions is very harsh. So uh, that's why the, the time of the earthquake is not, uh, you know, uh, is, is not allowing, you know, proper response operations. So this is the most important difficulty that we have encountered now. What does the short term recovery process look like and what does the long term recovery process look like? Of course, uh, and we have a hybrid approach in that. Uh, first of all, uh, we are now initial, we are trying to uh, complete initial response uh, stage. Uh, after that, uh, we, we, we are going to focus on uh, some uh, cash assistance, I think, together with our government. Uh, of course, we are complementing the efforts of the government in containing the impact of the 
uh, response. But uh, long term, uh, we are going to, uh, of course, we are going to focus. Oh, we just lost uh, Con Sorner's uh, feed. Thank you so much to Con Sorner and the International Red Crescent. Uh, let's bring in the U.S. ambassador to Turkey, former senator from Arizona, Jeff Flake. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, good to see you. What kind of help is the U.S. sending and providing to Turkey right now? Well, I'm pleased to report just in the last few hours, uh, President uh, Biden spoke to President Erdogan. Uh, Secretary Austin uh, spoke to his counterpart, the Minister of Defense. And uh, our Secretary of State spoke to the Foreign Minister. And so there's been a lot of offers of help. And uh, in particular, uh, what is needed is search and rescue. And there will be two teams going from the U.S., uh, one from Fairfax County, another from Los Angeles, what they call these heavy units, uh, each with, I think, 70 personnel uh, with search dogs as well as paramedics. And so uh, that's what we're told is needed. And certainly there's going to be a lot of that needed in the next few days. And what is the long term plan? Well, long term, obviously, if you look at the scope of devastation, it's 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 daunting. Uh, Turkey is, is very capable uh, and experienced with these kind of disasters, uh, but uh, the scale is just uh, so huge here. And I should say, uh, uh, Turkey has requested help and is accepting help, uh, but over the past seven years, they've paid it forward, if you will. They've, they've helped in uh, natural disasters around the world, I think uh, 50 countries, uh, five continents, uh, so, so they, but they are needing help. A lot of it in the in the coming weeks is going to be uh, finding housing for those who cannot uh, get back in their apartment buildings. It's a, a lot more vertical living here than, than people realize. And so a lot of those uh, apartment buildings are going to be unstable. I think the, the last word was about 2,800 uh, structures were uh, either down or, or partially uh, damaged. And uh, it's going to be hard to occupy those. So uh, certainly blank blankets and tents and and uh, some field hospitals and, and some other things are going to be needed as well. Obviously, there's a significant difference between the United States' ability to help Turkey, which is a fairly Western NATO member, and Syria, which is a country I don't think we have any diplomatic relations with them, at least not officially, and it's a country that's still racked by a civil war that's been going on for years and years. Um, are United States forces and NGOs and other agencies able to get into Syria to help those suffering people? Well, certainly there are a lot of NGOs and uh, U.S. government is, uh, has a number of programs there that we've worked uh, with our Turkish partners uh, a lot and with uh, Europeans as well. Uh, there is a crossing uh, down near Hatay, one of the areas really damaged uh, by this uh, earthquake. Uh, but that's going to be difficult. As you mentioned, there's no uh, functioning government really in a number of the areas, uh, you know, in northwest Syria. So it makes it doubly difficult. Um, but uh, a lot of nonprofit organizations, church groups and others are working hard uh, to make sure that aid is delivered there as well. The United Nations says millions of people in these affected areas were already displaced and receiving humanitarian assistance, I imagine, because of the civil war in Syria. Uh, are there any discussions about helping to relocate refugees? Well, uh, the hope is, uh, you know, there there are in Turkey already about uh, four million 
uh, Syrian refugees who've come over the past 10 years. Uh, Turkey's been very generous in terms of uh, placing refugees around the country. Uh, but the hope is that uh, they can be uh, settled where they are and, and helped where they are. Uh, but it's going to be difficult. Um, we, we don't have good numbers uh, coming out of Syria. It's difficult to have good numbers anywhere, uh, given that this just happened uh, 24 hours ago. So it, it's going to be difficult, but the hope is that, uh, that we can help people where they are. Mr. Ambassador, for Americans watching this coverage, or anyone, really, how, and, and, and wondering how they can help uh, from far away, um, what do you suggest? Well, gratefully, the U.S. government uh, has offered assistance, and that assistance is being accepted. Um, and also uh, a number of church groups, obviously the Red Cross and the Red Crescent, uh, are active in this area, obviously the Red Crescent. Uh, so donations are certainly accepted uh, there. Uh, also, a number of church groups we've already heard, um, and nonprofit organizations are, are working Oxfam. Uh, care, uh, you name it, uh, they're going to be active here. So there'll be plenty of opportunities for giving. And, and certainly uh, the U.S. State Department is active, as is uh, DOD with, with certain assets as well. So this is, uh, this is going to be a big task, and uh, we need the public sector and the private sector to be active. U.S. Ambassador to Turkey, Jeff Flake, thank you so much for your time. Uh, for more ways that you can help after this devastating earthquake, you can help to CNN.com slash impact, where you will find links to multiple reputable organizations doing work on the ground in Turkey and in Syria. That's CNN.com slash impact. Coming up, what can the U.S. military learn from the debris from that shot down spy balloon belonging to China? Officials in Ohio are also are about to release potentially deadly chemicals from a derailed train in order to avoid a massive explosion. Stay with us. In our other worldly, tensions are ballooning between the United States and China in the wake of the Chinese surveillance balloon that flew over the United States and was shot down by the U.S. over the weekend. The Chinese government earlier today reiterating its criticism of the U.S. for shooting down the balloon, while two senior Biden administration officials reiterated there are no plans to reschedule that diplomatic trip that Secretary of State Blinken canceled in the wake of this news. This all comes as U.S. officials are Beginning to share more details on the balloon, CNN's Kylie Atwood takes a look at what the U.S. is learning. A Chinese spy balloon up to 200 feet tall and weighing thousands of pounds, roughly the size of a regional jet. Oh my God, they shot it down. Shot down by a U.S. missile on Saturday afternoon. They just shot it. A bluebird day off the coast of South Carolina after taking a four to five day journey across the continental U.S. First, catching the attention of everyday Americans in Montana. But what the heck is that? But the agency tracking America's airspace knew the minute it entered Alaskan skies a few days earlier. Biden, first briefed on options for handling the situation last Wednesday, decided that the balloon had to come down. I told them to shoot it down. And so did a planned visit to Beijing for the Secretary of State. We concluded that conditions were not conducive for a constructive visit at this time. Prioritizing the safety of Americans, the administration waited until the balloon was no longer over U.S. soil to shoot it down. Now, recovery in the Atlantic Ocean is underway to learn more about the Chinese surveillance operation. The debris field is larger than 15 football fields by 15 football fields, a top U.S. general said Monday. 
it will take some time and people, all of us, including myself, will have to be patient as we do the recovery uh, and do the exploitation. In a rare admission, China claimed the airship was theirs, but called it a weather balloon taken off course and deemed the shootdown an overreaction. Furious critiques quickly emerged from Biden's political rivals. The president was paralyzed for an entire week by a balloon. Um, we should have shot this balloon down over the Aleutian Islands. We should never have allowed it to transit the entire continental United States. I think this entire episode uh, telegraphed weakness to Xi and the Chinese government. Biden officials said there have been at least three past instances of Chinese spy balloons crossing into the U.S. airspace. A top U.S. general said today that the threats were not detected in real time, calling it an awareness gap, which might explain why former Trump officials said they were unaware of the incursions. The administration explained that Biden has ordered additional assets to detect Chinese spying efforts. We were also able to go back and look at the historical patterns. And that uh, led us to come to understand that during the Trump administration, as you said, there were multiple instances where these surveillance balloons traversed American airspace and American territory. Now, I'm told, Jake, that neither U.S. officials nor Chinese officials have proposed a new date for the Secretary of State's uh, renewed visit to Beijing. There's no date on the calendar. That's something, of course, we'll continue to watch. And when it comes to who knew what when on the Chinese side, like if President Xi knew that this balloon was going to be coming over the U.S. at this time, or if the Ministry of Foreign Affairs knew that as they were planning Blinken's visit, the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said today that the U.S. is still piecing together that assessment. All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department, thanks so much. Today, pieces of the wreckage from that downed surveillance balloon are arriving at the FBI's lab in Quantico, Virginia. This comes after the debris was pulled from the water off South Carolina Saturday and Sunday. CNN's Orrin Lieberman is at the Pentagon. Orrin, can the U.S. use this wreckage to, to prove that this was, in fact, a spy balloon and not a weather surveillance craft, as the Chinese government claims? Yeah, and that depends only on the condition of the wreckage. How much of it can be picked up or pulled up from the bottom of the ocean? Not all that deep, just about 50 feet, but still has to be lifted, checked, and analyzed. Now, it's worth pointing out, the Pentagon is already confident this was a surveillance balloon. When China put out its explanation that this was simply an errant weather balloon that was floating off course with the jet stream... The Pentagon pretty much instantly rejected that, and they've said since that there was the ability for this to maneuver somewhat. The uh, National Security Council said a short time ago it had a propeller and rudders and gave it limited maneuverability. It could loiter so it could stay in the air over one spot and monitor. And it's for those reasons the Pentagon has already said they are confident this was a surveillance balloon, a spy balloon designed for intelligence gathering and to look and see what could be picked up. They have also said it appears it did not have any ability or technology above and beyond Chinese spy satellites. But, Jake, what it can do that spy satellites can't do, as we just saw, is loiter and stay over an area for an extended period of time. To get up close and personal with Chinese technology, that is a unique opportunity. And we're also learning more about the Pentagon claim over the weekend that three of these suspected spy balloons from the Chinese flew over the U.S. during the Trump administration, the Trump folks said they never heard of anything about that. The Pentagon is now clarifying that they didn't discover this until Biden took office. Former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton says, how were they able to assert this? Did they build a time machine 
How are they able to assert this? So this is an interesting question, and one they haven't given a full and complete answer on. But the, the Biden administration has, and we've seen the Pentagon do this, focus on UAPs, unmanned aerial phenomena, for us generally just UFOs, looking at all sorts of different aerial sightings and trying to make sense of them or figure out whether they're real or sim- simply anomalies in sensors. So perhaps here is the trail or the observational data that the Biden administration then used to put together that, yes, there were Chinese surveillance balloons that had transited over the continental U.S. But again, Jake, they're still not clear on how they could look back into the past and figure this out. Yeah, it's also possible that they got human intelligence, maybe some spy or whatever told them about this after the fact. Orrin Lieberman, thanks so much. Appreciate it. In South Carolina, the recovery effort is still underway to collect all the pieces from that spy balloon. The U.S. Navy and Coast Guard spanned out the length of 15 football fields searching for more debris. CNN's Diane Gallagher, who is made of sturdier stuff than I, went out on the water to see just how the recovery effort was going. Under the full moon, just before dawn, we set out for sea. Captain Charlie readies his shrimp boat the Linda Ann, dropping the outriggers, checking the radar, steering us towards the U.S. military's operation to recover debris from the suspected Chinese spy balloon. The U.S. Air Force shot it down with a single missile on Saturday over the Atlantic Ocean, roughly six miles off the coast of Myrtle Beach. The NORAD commander now saying the full payload was about the size of a regional jet and the attached balloon was some 200 feet tall. As day breaks, we begin to see something on the horizon. The first glimpse of a multi-vessel mission, which officials say includes Navy divers and ships coming from as far away as Virginia. A law enforcement source tells CNN the first pieces of sensitive spy balloon wreckage are already arriving at the FBI headquarters in Quantico for analysis. But recovery continues. CNN captured this exclusive video of a Navy salvage team coming on shore in North Myrtle Beach today and setting out on two more boats towards the search area. With restricted airspace above, the debris field at sea remains heavily protected. The Coast Guard warning our captain as we're getting too close. Copy that. Followed by a second call an hour later to confirm we were leaving. This is Linda Ann, go ahead. Linda Ann, Coast Guard Cutter Nathan Brechtal. I just wanted to confirm your intentions. I've got um, <clears throat> my news crews on board, our news crew, and they were just trying to get some video of the cutter and just trying to stay out of y'all's way. The Coast Guard Cutter following us to ensure we stayed clear of their work zone. Now, as for how long this stretch of ocean will remain restricted, a senior U.S. military official shared only that it would not be months or weeks. A fairly easy recovery, they said, because the spy balloon was shot down in just 47 feet of water. Now, according to the NORAD commander, the USS Pathfinder is also on site using sonar to map out that debris field. And when I spoke to the captain here of the Linda Ann, he said that it makes sense that this perimeter is so large, that 20-mile perimeter. And to give you an idea, because of the sonar, to give you an idea of just how big that is, I want you to look. See how close we are to the shore? According to our captain, we are just now leaving that 20-mile perimeter. We're right up at the shore, Jake. All right, Diane Gallagher off the South Carolina coast. Thank you so much. Coming up next, what we're learning today about a foiled plot to destroy a major American city by targeting the electrical grid. Stay with us.
In our national lead, a neo-Nazi leader and his Maryland girlfriend have been charged with conspiring to bring down Baltimore's power grid. Authorities say the two were plotting to completely destroy the city by attacking several electrical substations encircling Baltimore. The charges come as experts warn that attempts by extremist groups to attack U.S. power facilities are trending up. CNN's John Miller joins us now live with more on this. And John, the pair were not just talking, they were taking active steps to fulfill this neo-Nazi conspiracy. Tell us about it. Well, this involves a guy named Brandon Russell um, and a woman that he met uh, online. Russell is the former head of the Atomwaffen Division, a neo-Nazi group that was based in Florida. He did his uh, time for possession of explosives and bomb-making materials. He was on supervised release when he allegedly began this plot. And the active part was trading maps, locations of power stations, information about vulnerabilities and how to cause cascading failures of the power system that would lead to extended blackouts in the Baltimore area. And as you know, this isn't the first time this neo-Nazi leader has been in trouble with the law. He, he was accused of plotting a different attack before, right? Well, at the time that he was arrested the last time for having bomb-making materials, it was because one of his roommates was murdered by another one. But together, the people living in that house was looking at critical infrastructure, assembling the homemade explosives to uh, attack power stations along Alligator Alley. So uh, the first thing he allegedly does on supervised release is go back to square one and start plotting this. And Jake, it's important to note that this has now become a thread of the neo-Nazi uh, uh, national socialist white supremacist conversation in the darkest corner of the web. Uh, we've gone over some of the materials they've been trading back and forth, and the theory is if they can black out enough cities for long enough, that will lead to rioting and looting, then a race war, then the collapse of the government. It's part of their master plan to take over the world. Uh, luckily, they're not very good at it. Yeah, luckily they're far from the master race. John Miller, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Also in our national lead, any moment, officials in East Palestine, Ohio, will take steps to get the threat of a catastrophic explosion under control. A train carrying hazardous chemicals derailed late on Friday, causing a huge inferno, a conflagration that continues to burn. Officials are begging residents to leave. They're setting up roadblocks to prevent those from coming into the one-mile evacuation zone. CNN's Jason Carroll is east uh, in East Palestine, Ohio. Jason, w what's the plan to reduce the threat right now? Well, first of all, Jake, we should tell you that a fire official just came by our camera position and told us that this should be getting underway in about two minutes. So we'll see if that happens. Uh, basically, the governor put it this way. He said, Jake, that there are no easy choices here, given what they're up against. Uh, we are here at the command center where they gave us a rundown of how this controlled release and controlled burn is supposed to work. Basically, what's going to happen once it gets underway, experts are going to be going over to those derailed train cars. They're going to be planting small explosive devices on each of the five cars. Uh, once there's an explosion, uh, some of that toxic material will then ooze out and will go into a trench where it will burn. And if all goes as planned, it will then burn itself off. A short while ago, one of the experts from the train company, a representative from the train company, also an expert in hazardous materials, weighed in on this and gave us more of a rundown of how this will take place. This will allow the material to come out of the tank car. It'll go into a pit 
and trench that we have dug and set up for this operation. Um, inside that trench will be flares lining that trench that then will light off the material. We're doing this so that we control this tank car that we have concerns with. So a lot of questions here, Jake, one of them being how will we know it works? And when we put that question to the experts, they say they'll get a sense very quickly of, of whether or not it's working based on how the burn is going, whether or not they see this toxic material uh, releasing from these uh, engines. They say that this whole thing should take anywhere from one to three hours if all goes as planned. Jake, what are the dangers surrounding this controlled release, Jason? Well, there are, there are many, because in a controlled release such as this, remember, you've got this toxic material, vinyl chloride, that, that's inside these derailed cars. And once that burns, the byproduct of that is hydrogen chloride and phosgene. And in this particular area, if you're in what's the, what they call the red area, which is very close to the derailed cars, according to the experts here, they say if you inhale this toxic, this, these toxic gases, it can be deadly. If you're in what they call the yellow zone a little bit further out, remember there is a, a one mile to two mile radius around East Palestine. But if you're in that yellow area, even in that area, you could have adverse effects from this. So that is why they were urging people last night to get out. Their feeling is last night some 100 additional people actually evacuated. Uh, in terms of how many people are left, we really push them on that issue. They say by their best estimation, some 30 people might be left in that area. So you can see why they were urging people to get out. All right, Jason Carroll in East Palestine, Ohio. Thanks so much. Coming up next, the seemingly never-ending fight for control of the key Ukrainian city. Stay with us. Now to Ukraine in our world lead in the relentless fight for the key eastern city of Bakhmut. Private Russian Wagner army boss Yevgeny Prigozhin admitted on Sunday that Ukraine's armed forces, quote, fight to the last, refuting earlier media reports about a Ukrainian retreat from the northern corner of that city. CNN's Sam Kiley is southwest of Bakhmut in Zaporizhia. And Sam, a Ukrainian commander in the area describes Bakhmut as a, quote, unwinnable fortress. How is the geography of the city playing into this grinding battle? Well, I think the main thing uh, is, uh, well, there are two things really, Jake. It's on a hill and it is a city, so or a large town rather, and it's got a very big industrial outer ring. Now, all of that lends itself to defence and makes it very, very difficult for Wagner, which has had to fight across open fields to get to the city, and not just Wagner, but the other Russian regular forces too. So it has been, particularly from their perspective, a meat grinder. Now, Prigozhin, as always, is seeking some kind of publicity on an almost daily basis, this time suggesting that the uh, Ukrainians might be able to hang on. Indeed, President Zelensky has said that he would be reinforcing troops there. I'm in contact with soldiers, both foreigners, volunteers and Ukrainians on the front line who don't believe that the city or the town rather is worth hanging on to indefinitely with an unending cost of life, particularly as it has been so bloody uh, for the Russians ultimately. But the Ukrainians are spread thin. They are short of men. They are short of materiel that those two uh, assets that the Russians have are plenty. Uh, what they have over the Russians is some more modern equipment coming in and above all motivation. So there is a debate going on within the Ukrainians as to whether or not it's really worth holding on 
in terms of military strategy to this town, which doesn't really serve the Russians, even if they were to capture it, doesn't serve them up a particularly important strategic win, Jake. Sam, just to the south of you um, is the port city of Kherson, which was recently liberated, but Kherson is also still bracing for a Russian spring offensive. Um, what are the people there telling you? Well, Kherson is getting hit and hit hard, uh, Jake. Uh, it, one of the hardest hit cities, probably the hardest hit city anywhere in Ukraine. On a daily basis, the number of incoming shells and missiles can number anywhere between 15 or 20, right up to 70 or 80. A mixture of direct fire from tanks, mortars, grad, multiple rocket launching systems, the whole panoply, because they're just across the river from the Russians. The Russians did hold it until November. They withdrew from the city to the other side of the Dnieper River, uh, and they're using that natural barrier to bombard the civilian population there. And that, of course, absorbs a lot of Ukrainian troops. I don't think there's any real chance that the Russians would try to break through in this much vaunted potential spring offensive in that area. They're more likely to come further north here in Zaporizhia uh, and out uh, 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 west from, uh, rather east from here towards their more uh, the areas they control more more uh, strongly because they have a long front line there that's been relatively quiet. But this along this whole front, there are preparations, secret preparations going on among the Ukrainian forces to prepare for any eventuality and a lot of effort going into trying to figure out what the next Russian move will be, Jake. CNN, Sam Kiley in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Thank you so much. A few minutes ago, we told you about that controlled release about to happen in Ohio, and these are the live pictures from the city of East Palestine, Ohio where officials have just started that process of releasing the chemicals. A train carrying unstable chemicals derailed on Friday. This is the plan to prevent a catastrophic explosion, setting off a controlled release of some of the hazardous chemicals. These chemicals are expected to burn off for one to three hours. The area has been evacuated as much as possible, authorities say. Still ahead, dead whales and the mystery of why they are ending up on beaches in the northeastern United States do offshore wind farms really have anything to do with it, as some conservatives are claiming? We're going to ask an expert. That's next. In our national lead, in just the last two months, nine whales, nine, have washed up on beaches in New York and New Jersey. Now New Jersey Republican state and federal lawmakers say they have a hunch as to why so many whales are showing up dead on their beaches, pointing to a Biden-backed offshore wind farm project that it's just in its early survey stages. Scientists say they're concerned, too, about the whale deaths, but they do not agree with the wind farm theory, citing a few other possibilities, including an increasing whale population, migrating food sources due to warming oceans, and more whales in busy boating areas, which makes them more likely to get hit by ships. Let's bring in whale expert and marine biologist Michael Moore. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us. An official from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says, quote, there are no known connections between any of these offshore wind activities and any whale strandings, regardless of species, unquote. Now, we do know that birds can be killed by wind farms, although house cats are statistically a bigger risk to birds. But are there any proven risks, proven risks to marine wildlife from wind farms? Directly, no. Indirectly, wind farms beget vessel traffic, and vessel collisions are a proven, well-known, well-established source of trauma to large whales, which can be fatal or sublethal. So yes, in terms of 
increased activity on the water from that industry. No, in terms of specific uh, direct impacts of the prospecting or the establishment of these farms. If blunt force trauma from boats is possibly a primary cause of these whale deaths, um, is there a solution to help ships locate these animals, avoid them, even with the increased traffic because of the wind farms? The management solutions for vessel strike are to slow vessels down if you cannot move them out of whale habitat. 10 knots is a good number to aim for. Detection of the animals is also important and it's difficult at times. Uh, Visually from a plane, from a boat, we also have technologies at Woods Hole that we're developing for uh, listening for them with mobile gliders and also using infrared uh, cameras with automatic uh, detection of these animals looking thermally for the for the heat of the animals as they surface. So better awareness and slower ships and management of shipping lanes have all been important pieces of the attempts to reduce blunt trauma in uh, and, and propeller trauma too with vessel strikes for whatever cause, whether it be a wind farm ship or a navy ship or a cargo ship or a ferry or a recreational boat. There's also speculation about sonar, which is used to map the ocean floor. And some officials say the New Jersey Wind Farm Project is prohibited from using the level of sonar that is fatal to marine life. Is there any level of sonar um, that is, uh, is, let me rephrase that, is any level of sonar harmful to whales or is some acceptable? How you define harm? Uh, Certainly any noise in the ocean can cause behavioral disturbance. Toothed whales, such as uh, pilot whales or killer whales or sperm whales, use sonar themselves. And so they're well tuned to that and they're more sensitive to the effects of sonar, whether it be mild or more severe. Whereas baleen whales do not use sonar. Uh, They therefore have not been shown to have any as substantial behavioral responses to sonar of, of any kind. Michael Moore, thank you so much for your expertise. Really, really appreciate it. Very interesting story. Should the United States have shot down that spy balloon when it was still over land? A Republican member of the Homeland Security Committee joins me next to discuss. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, death and mystery inside the Dallas Zoo. Exotic animals keep disappearing from their enclosures, and one has died. We'll take a deeper dive on the strange happenings. Plus, rescuers from around the world scrambling now to reach anyone buried alive under collapsed buildings from the earthquake in Turkey and Syria as the death toll soars into the thousands. And leading this hour, we're learning more about that downed Chinese spy balloon that has left behind a debris field 15 football fields long. U.S. military officials now revealing there were concerns about potential explosives on board. Some Republican officials have criticized Biden's decision to wait until the balloon was over water, the Atlantic Ocean, to shoot it down. But Pentagon officials are defending the decision, claiming they were able to gather more intelligence about the balloon that way and also downing it over land posed a risk to American civilians. We're going to start our coverage today with CNN's Natasha Bertrand from the Pentagon and CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Natasha, General Glenn Van Herc is the commander of the North American Aerospace Defense Command. 
He said today that the delay in shooting the balloon was useful in collecting intelligence on the balloon. What, what kind of information are they hoping to collect? You know, Jake, officials have been very vague on this. What they have said over the last few days is that they were able to collect intelligence about the way that the balloon was transmitting information, for example, and other ways about how it maneuvered. But ultimately, what we're told is that the administration does not believe that it was ultimately able to gather that much intelligence at all because the the specifications of the balloon were not all that sophisticated, right? No more sophisticated, say, than the satellites that the Chinese have hovering in orbit as we speak. But the issue, of course, with the satellites is that they do not stay in one place for as long as a balloon can. A balloon can loiter for a much longer period of time, as it did over Montana, for example. So the U.S. officials that we spoke to did say that there were steps taken to cover up certain areas to make sure that no unencrypted communications were happening in the vicinity of the balloon and generally just minimize the ability of the balloon to collect intel. But, you know, one really interesting detail that we learned today, Jake, is that the U.S. military actually does not have the capability on a day-to-day basis to collect intelligence on things inside the United States. And so they were given special authorization to collect intelligence on this balloon while it was in uh, over the United States, Jake. Manu, House Republicans are are discussing right now whether or not they should pass a resolution to condemn the Biden administration's handling of the balloon, entering and traveling across U.S. airspace for days. Uh, Biden says the Pentagon warned him shooting it down over land posed a real risk to Americans. What's the main criticism you're hearing from Republican lawmakers? Yeah, the Republicans are saying that the president should have acted sooner and that they should have taken steps to shoot down this balloon when it would not potentially endanger American lives. As Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, said yesterday, he said it defies belief to suggest there was nowhere between the Aleutian Islands of Alaska and the coast of Carolina where this balloon could have been shot down to avoid endangering American lives. Chuck Schumer, the Senate Democratic leader, said that those kind of criticisms are premature and they are political. Now, there is a hope among the Democratic leaders and the Republican leaders that there will be more information coming as soon as tomorrow. There's an expectation that the so-called Gang of Eight, the leaders of Congress and the leaders of the Intelligence Committee, will get highly classified information about exactly what happened here. Then there will be another briefing for the larger set of members, the Senate Intelligence Committee members, uh, as well as uh, the full Senate, as well as uh, the full House, potentially could get briefed as soon as next week. Other members from the key committees want to get... uh, briefed as well. Now, Jake, there is still, it's still uncertain whether the House Republicans will take some symbolic gesture to condemn the president's actions. Remember, the House majority on the Republican side, very narrow. They can't lose more than four Republican votes to approve anything. And at the moment, they don't have an agreement yet on what any resolution could look like. So I am told at this moment, they're still debating about whether to proceed on any sort of vote to sort of push back against the Biden administration here. But Kevin McCarthy right now meeting with his top leaders in his office as they chart out the floor strategy and decide how to proceed on this issue. But, Mana, just to clarify, is there a specific, <clears throat> a specific part of the country where they think or say specifically this is where it should have been shot down? I mean, what are they talking about? Well, there's, they simply don't know, Jake. At the moment, there is still so much uncertainty about exactly where this could have, uh, this could have safely been shot down, but they, are, they seem to believe that there was an opportunity to shoot down this balloon at some point uh, through its journey across the United States where it would not have endangered American lives. But, Jake, again, there is just simply a, a vacuum of information on Capitol Hill and not getting answers from the White House, which is why Republicans are asking for more information and criticizing the president, but still asking for, for some more answers here. 
Manu and Natasha Bertrand, thanks to both of you. Joining us now to discuss, Republican Congressman Dan Bishop of North Carolina, who is a member of the House Homeland Security Committee. Congressman, good to see you. So last Tuesday, uh, President Biden was briefed about this Chinese spy balloon hovering over Montana. Uh, the president held off shooting it down, given concerns uh, expressed by the Pentagon that it could hurt or kill someone on the ground. Uh, the Pentagon waited until it was over the Atlantic Ocean Saturday to take it down. Um, you disagree with that decision? You know, not necessarily, Jake, but I think questions ought to be asked about it. I, uh, your, your report just aired suggested that uh, uh, Leader McConnell had a reasonable question. Nowhere between the Aleutian Islands when it was first detected until it ended up uh, in the uh, coast, uh, Atlantic Ocean off the coast of my state, was there an opportunity to take it down over a desolate area? Could it not have been taken down by you know, puncturing it with multiple cannon rounds so that it would drift slowly to earth? Or was there no other way it could have been done? And when you see the kind of make-weight arguments that emerge, it seemed to have a political objective or, or sort of a, a covering you, you know what, uh, like uh, they, they were letting it continue to float so that they could gather and in, tell about it. But then at the end of your own report, it said, but it didn't seem like they could gather much more intel by letting it float through the United States. There's just a lot of questions that are suggested, and I'm not sure there's any harm in raising them. Oh, no, absolutely not. Ask away. I think the questions are, are, are good to ask. I just, I just don't know an answer as to where it would have been appropriate to shoot it down. I mean, 8,000 people live on the Aleutian Islands. Um, yeah. U.S. officials say that the balloon was up to 200 feet tall, weighed a couple thousand pounds. Uh, we know that the debris field in the Atlantic was uh, over the uh, outside of the Carolina coast was seven miles long. I mean, if it was shot down, theoretically, somebody could have been killed by the debris. Well, fair points, uh, Jake, all of those. And, and ultimately, that's what the president's responsible for is making those calls. But uh, the reason questions are raised about it is it is disheartening to the American people, I think, to see the apparent impotence of this balloon tr uh, uh, crossing the, drifting across the continental United States, uh, acknowledged to be a Chinese spy balloon, and military just seems to say that, or President Biden says he doesn't, can't do anything about it. Uh, until it gets out over the Atlantic Ocean. If that's so, then perhaps we'll learn more about that. Uh, but it, unfortunately, we can't seem to keep on having these uh, examples of, of impotence of the military to protect the national security interests of the United States, and that should never be acceptable to anyone. What other instances are you talking about of the impotence of the U.S. military? Well, I'm thinking specifically of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the way that occurred, uh, which I think is everyone said that has been a debacle we don't want to see repeated. Uh, we want to see, we spend, have tremendous investment in the United States military. We want to see it used to get to the, to the proper effect to protect the national security of the United States. Uh, what are you hoping that we learn about the kind of information that this spy balloon was able to collect? Well, uh, we certainly want to know what they're doing. Uh, and so uh, we'll, we should, hopefully they can recover from the debris field, something to indicate what kind of uh, instruments were on board uh, and get some indication they're flying across uh, missile silos in Montana, across uh, above Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Uh, what was the purpose of it? I do see now that uh, military seems to admit, or the administration admits, uh, that, there, that there was, in fact, it was not a, a balloon that was off course, a weather balloon off course, that it, it, it was expected to traverse the United States in the way that it did and was allowed to by the Biden administration. So we have learned that the White House um, has been aware of Chinese spy balloons or on at least three occasions uh, during uh, the Trump years and two times, including this one, uh, after Biden took office. Um, and now the Biden administration is offering briefings 
uh, to key officials from the Trump administration about the incidents. Um, does it concern you that we're only now learning that this has happened four other previous times, including three times in the previous administration? Yes, that concerns me a great deal, although the story has evolved over the course of the day as to exactly what happened. So I think AP put out a story citing unnamed senior officials as saying this has happened three times, perhaps in the Trump administration. Mike Esper said he didn't know anything about it. Mike Pompeo said he didn't know anything about it. President Trump said he didn't know anything about it. And, uh, and now I understand there's even a story that uh, maybe nobody was advised about it. It could only have been determined after the fact. There are a lot of questions to answer there, uh, but I think we just don't know what the, what the story was. I certainly can't imagine uh, President Trump's leadership uh, allowing that to occur and not reacting to it. And I'd be surprised if it wasn't observed by people on the ground. These things are massive. Uh, it certainly was picked up by people on the ground in this case. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the details of it. I mean, it's certainly, impo- it's certainly possible that they uh, went back and saw the data that they saw from this one and then realized it happened before during the, the Trump years. It could be that they got some new intel from a spy or whatever. We have no idea. Um, going forward, are there steps the U.S. should take to make sure that our U.S. military is better prepared if a Chinese spy balloon once again comes into U.S. airspace? Well, I would think that would... Uh perhaps come forward from the recommendations and advice of, of those who are in position to know, the, uh, uh, the folks running the military and the administration. So I hope not only the Gang of Eight, but in due course, I'm going to sit on the Committee on Homeland Security. I hope we'll be briefed on uh, what was happening so that uh, all of us can have an opportunity to, to know on behalf of the three-quarters of a million Americans that each of us represents what has happened and not depend on unnamed sources and uh, for those uh, accounts like we've seen today. It'd be better to get more people on the record as far as I'm concerned. I always agree. Republican Congressman Dan Bishop of the beautiful state of North Carolina, thanks so much, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Devastation and desperation. Rescuers working through the night to find survivors after a massive earthquake in Turkey and Syria that has killed it, at last count, at least 3,400 people. We're live on the ground there next. And what jurors and the Alec Murdoch murder trial will now be allowed to hear about the defendant's multi-million dollar financial trouble. Stay with us. In our world lead today, at least 3,400 people are dead and many more thousands injured after a massive earthquake hit Turkey and Syria earlier this morning. Right now, search and rescue teams from around the world are headed to the region to help. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is on the ground in Turkey with a closer look now at the widespread death and devastation. Not everyone woke up today. Dozens of children pulled from under the rubble in this rebel-held Syrian town, their lifeless bodies lining the corridors of the overwhelmed hospital. Most of those casualties, uh, children and women, and there is a lot, a lot under the levels, and we, uh, we receive more and more every hour. The destruction knew no borders. A magnitude 7.8 earthquake and over 100 powerful aftershocks flattened buildings in Turkey and Syria. In Kahraman Marash, near the epicentre in Turkey, people woke up to the sight of their worlds demolished, wondering if their neighbours are still alive under the rubble. As soon as the shaking slowed down, we threw ourselves outside. By the dawn, we started looking for our relatives. We have losses, and there are several people we still can't reach. At the moment, two voices are coming from the rubble. 
Şu an deprem meydana geliyor. Aftershocks caught rescuers and journalists by surprise. Some almost as powerful as the first earthquake. Reducing the crumbling buildings into dust, sending survivors running for their lives again. Now is the time to really be able to prevent those some of those further deaths. Some people, unfortunately, um, won't uh, won't be saved. In near freezing temperatures, the snowstorms are hampering what would already be tough rescue efforts. Where the destruction is worst, the bodies will be pulled out slowly, each one laden with hope for a miracle that slips away with each icy hour. Now, busy highway we've been driving down, Jake, and seeing their Turkey's effort just beginning to get underway. Excavators, fire engines, sirens we're seeing as essentially they begin to come to terms with quite how bad the devastation is barely 24 hours after this earthquake has struck. A death toll here in Turkey of nearly 2,400, another thousand across the border in Syria. And while Turkey can muster logistics and will find as it gets into towns it's not yet been able to access that these numbers rise, the situation across the border in what was been war-torn Syria for so many years is significantly worse, living in much more fragile infrastructure there, already with the cold of winter making life very difficult indeed, and any aid that can get to people inside Syria will come with the same political problems that have blighted so much of that area since the civil war here. So people waking up to seeing entire neighbourhoods and cities flattened by this earthquake, uh, the worst certainly for a 100 years here in Turkey, and I think just the scale of the devastation and human loss here beginning to become apparent, Jake. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much. Joining us now on the phone is Iyad Kordi. He's a CNN producer who was in Turkey near the epicenter when the earthquake happened. Uh, Iyad, I understand your family was asleep when the shaking started. Is everyone in your world okay? Uh, first of all, before you tell us about the experience, is, is everyone you know all right? Good evening, Jake. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, everyone is all right. Uh, I still have a couple of friends that I could not reach in Antakya. So they are offline. I don't know what's uh, going to happen with them. Uh, but most importantly now, we uh, th- there are like new problems unveiling. Uh, most mostly food shortage, and also uh, low temperatures. Uh, it's about minus two degrees here now in Gaza Antep. It's raining. Uh, very uh, the mosques, the schools, some. Um, uh, I've seen sta- uh, I've heard uh, of friend going to the stadium. Uh, a lot of those like closed spaces that people believe that its structure can hold heavy earthquakes are very overcrowded by people. The other problem is all the markets, all the markets are closed. I have not seen a single open market in the last ten hours in Gaza City, and it's becoming a problem. The municipality was trying, like, tried a little bit to give some food to uh, the people staying in the centers, but the problem was, uh, the problem was that uh, the food was really little, and they came once only. And uh, where I'm staying now, uh, I'm, I'm, in a mo- I'm uh, in a mosque where there are, which is two floors, about hundred. People in each floor, most of them are children and women and elders. Uh, like a lot of people do not have enough food for more than like one portion, which is which is really 
concerning. I mean, people are still waiting for help, and uh, they understand, like people understand, like saving lives now is the priority, but also there are millions of people that are facing like serious challenges because of food and temperature, and uh, uh, some people were a little bit uh, frustrated by the lack of action by the authorities over the last few hours. Yeah, tell us about the experience when you felt the earthquake. So basically, it started at 4.19 a.m., my time, uh, our local time. Uh, I was awake at the time. Uh, in Gaza, Antip, every, every, every month or every couple of months, there's a small uh, shake, normally like three degrees. It lasts like for four or five seconds. So it started like that for the first three seconds. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not just going to react because my parents are asleep and I don't want to scare them. But then like after the first, after the third second, it, the shake was so intense to the point like it was unbelievable. It was like, I don't know how to describe it, but uh, there are some certain like video games where you can put... Like, it's like you are in a VR world and there's somebody is trying to shake you really hard and then you fell on the ground. And it was really, really, really strong. And I've, uh, I've, witnessed, like, I've seen before, I've, I've been uh, in a place where uh, an earthquake of 5.5 magnitude happened in the past in Turkey. And this, that 5.5 was like a baby step for that, for the 7.8 that we, it was really strong. I was trying to calm down my family. I was shouting, shouting actually to get them out of the alley because they were staying there and they were just in, like, they were traumatized at the time. I was just shouting, trying to ask them to go to the safer position to uh, be able to at least, like, uh, not get uh, hurt by objects around them. And I was trying to like to calm them down, tell them it's gonna over, it's gonna be over, it's gonna be over. But it lasted so long time. I don't know exactly. Like I, I did not see the official uh, timing exactly, but it, uh, to me, it felt like a full minute. The last ten seconds, like I, I thought it was like that's it. Mm. it it's not gonna. I'm not gonna make it out of that. So it, it was over. Uh, we grabbed uh, like a uh, couple of uh, yeah. small stuff passports for like in the first minute we, we ran out of the building in our pajamas and slippers and then uh, we waited there uh, there was snow about five centimeters long it was rainy and uh, we uh, waited for 30 minutes there in yeah. our pajamas and then I had to come back to come back bring some clothes and then they became more more warmer and then we had since that time, which is about uh, 16 hours ago, yeah. oh, sorry, uh, 17, 17 hours ago, it has been like a lot of aftershocks, aftershock, after aftershock, after aftershock. I was counting, but like I just lost the count. Seriously, it's, oh. it's over, at least over. Well, I felt over 80 in Gaza Antib alone. Uh, Eid Cordy, we're so glad that you and your family are are are, are, sa- are safe. Um, please stay safe. Um, for ways that you can help after this devastating earthquake, please head to cnn.com slash impact. You'll find links to multiple reputable, reputable organizations doing work on the ground in Turkey and Syria. CNN.com slash impact. Coming up, term limits for you, but not for me. Senator Ted Cruz wants to limit the number of terms members of Congress can serve. Why he says his own proposal does not apply to him without it passed into law. Stay with you, with us.
President Joe Biden is preparing to deliver his second State of the Union address tomorrow night. Biden tweeted this image earlier today, showing the first page of his remarks, captioning the photo, getting ready. CNN's Phil Manningly is live at the White House for us. Phil, what is Biden's team saying about what the president's message will be tomorrow? You know, Jake, that photo from hours of intensive preparation at Camp David with his top advisors as they worked through the final drafts of this second State of the Union address for the president. And it's one that thematically is going to track very closely with what you've heard from the president over the course of the last couple of weeks. Clear progress, but more work to be done. Opportunities to get more work done, but the need for Republicans to work with him in order to, uh, to secure some of those accomplishments. Or as the president framed it when he returned from Camp David, like this. Yeah, I want to talk to the American people and let them know the state of affairs, what's going on, why, what I'm looking forward to working on from this point on, what we've done, and uh, just have a conversation with the American people. You know, that conversation will be heavy with what they have done, particularly the legislative accomplishments of the last two years and what those accomplishments will lead to, particularly on the economic side in the year ahead. To some degree, this is an inflection point speech for a president that feels like the U.S. has turned a corner on the economy and certainly on the public health front in the wake of the pandemic. And also is just a couple of weeks away from a likely re-election announcement. It's worth noting, Kevin McCarthy is now the Speaker of the House, will be sitting behind the president for the first time. The president will put forth, like he did last year, a unity agenda to work in a bipartisan manner with Republicans, but he will make clear, advisors say, that where Republicans diverge from the president's key priorities, key commitments, he will certainly be willing to fight over those issues, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House, uh, thanks so much. Uh, let's discuss, and Catherine, let me start with you. This is a, a key moment for President Biden. This is the first time he'll be presiding over the State of the Union uh, with a Republican-controlled House, with Kevin McCarthy uh, behind him. He has some bipartisan achievements uh, to his name in terms of infrastructure and uh, the Burn Pits Act and, and on and on. Uh, but he also wants to contrast what he wants to do with what the House Republicans do, and he's accusing them of planning all sorts of cuts that the House Republicans say are not in the works, uh, Medicare, Social Security, et cetera. Um, how does he balance this unity agenda? I heard you I saw you chuckling about that, uh, Quinn, and, and also, um, you know, drawing a contrast. Yeah, and it's a moment, right, where you, the divisions in Washington really are on visible display, right? The president is there, you know, flanked by Speaker McCarthy. You'll see the folks in the room who are opposed to his agenda, He's going to try and continue to walk the line that he's been walking in speeches as he's been out around the country recently, which is to try and highlight the things that they've done in a bipartisan way, the things they think that are popular, investments in infrastructure, you know, investments in spending that people will see in their communities, and, and try and call on Republicans to work in him with things like that, but also make clear that he's going to continue pushing his agenda uh, either way. And this really foreshadows his 2024 message if he chooses to run again, right, that he has delivered on promises for the public, and he's going to continue to do that, you know, with or without Republicans. All right, Quinn, why were you chuckling when, I, when, when, when Phil said unity agenda? Because Biden keeps saying unity and then never delivering it, never even reaching out in any way towards any Republican priorities or really giving up anything that he wants. Uh, every, every president does the same thing. They get up at the State of the Union and give their very strong partisan talking points and then say, I want unity and bipartisanship and the other guys are really bad guys and the way they need to be bipartisan is to come and do everything that I want. And that's basically what Biden's been doing for two years. He's not the first president to do it, but that's what he's done. And uh, he, he has pushed an entirely partisan agenda and uh, 
I think the American people might actually like it if rather than just say, I define bipartisanship with as you guys agreeing with me. Instead, if he reached out and actually offered some things that might sound bipartisan. So whatever you think about what he's passed, what he signed into law, he, he certainly has passed it, uh, some partisan stuff. There's also been some bipartisan stuff. It has been an accomplishment filled two years. Now, you might not like the accomplishments. Quinn might not like the accomplishments, <laughs> but there's been a lot. And yet, this is fascinating. A new Washington Post ABC News poll shows 62 percent of Americans think Biden has accomplished not very much or little to nothing or little or nothing during his uh, presidency. Um, so whether you don't like it or, or, I mean, he's not even getting credit for the stuff Quinn's saying he, he didn't like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if they're not paying attention. I don't know if the media is not covering the substantive stuff enough. I feel like I, we've been covering I, I, it. I don't, well, I mean, Jake obviously Jake has. accepted, of course. I mean, yes. Um, but, but I, or I, I do also think, I don't think Biden is the best communicator <laughs> in the history of the world. And so I don't know that he's done a, necessarily a wonderful job of letting people know that. Um, I think that those kinds of numbers also, though, do tend to just reflect how people are feeling about things. And so I think that they maybe are feeling that they're not that happy with the way things are going. And he doesn't have a very high approval rating. And so all of that stuff is always going to get baked into this, you know, whether they're following along or not. But I do want to address the bipartisan thing. I actually think he, I mean, he has passed a couple of bipartisan bills. The CHIP Act. And, and, yeah, yeah. and also he has, guns. you know, and he has negotiated much more so than I think a lot of Frankly, Democrats even wanted him to. But you can't have unity if you don't have people who want to have unity with you, which is why I've always found it to be kind of a strange message, because there is never going to be a coming together between the Democrats and the Republicans. They live on different planets. Yeah. And I think one of the big tests of this bipartisanship is going to be uh, this debate over the debt ceiling and whether or not they can get something done. The deadline doesn't come up until June. There have obviously been meetings uh, with McCarthy that Biden had at the White House. Both of them came out and said those meetings uh, went well. There's some talk about maybe some sort of discharge position, a petition, which would be good news for Biden. Um, And we'll see what happens with that. You have both sides very much dug in. Uh, McCarthy having to negotiate with sort of the far right, who don't really necessarily want to get get anything done. But I think that is going to be a real test of this talk of bipartisanship, whether or not Biden can actually get this done. And this is really important to, to Americans, to the economy. If it doesn't get done in time, it could have real negative impact on the economy. So let me just take a, a TV timeout, which yeah. is to explain to the American yes, people what a what, what a discharge <laughs> petition is, which yeah. is if 218 members of Congress go and sign a discharge uh-huh. petition, that forces it onto the floor for a vote. So it's not up to the speaker. It's not up to the rules committee. That forces it. So you would need basically every Democrat and a handful of Republicans uh, to do that. And, and Catherine, um, Congressman Don Bacon, uh, who is a Republican that represents a purple area of Omaha, Nebraska, mm-hmm. uh, he told the Washington Post, we're willing to do a discharge petition. Uh, he's speaking on behalf of moderates, I suppose, if there's a good faith effort by Biden to compromise and to come up with a good solution. So I guess that's plan B. I mean, there are certainly uh, moderates or, you know, uh, Republicans like Bacon who have talked about how they don't want to see the U.S. default and they are interested in seeing if there's a way forward on this. But we're a long way from June and there's going to be so much grandstanding on both sides before then until they can reach some kind of solution, I think, on this one. What do you think? Well, first of all, I'm sick of the grandstanding on both sides. Both sides do it, and it, it is really upsetting to people like me who came up in an era when, they, when the parties at least talked to each other. 
And, you know, I can, I can remember Bob Dole and, and uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan getting together and basically saving Social Security uh, with Ronald Reagan support. Uh, I can remember being on Capitol Hill when uh, clearly the Democrats and Republicans didn't like each other during the Clinton era, but Bob Livingston and Bill Clinton actually negotiated uh, a way forward on appropriations. That doesn't happen anymore. It would be nice if an American president would get up and say, let's actually come to the table in a way that both sides can give a little and both sides can get a little. During the Obama years, the person doing that was, was Joe Biden. Biden. <laughs> yeah. But he's not in a position. He doesn't do that anymore. Yeah, but I think this is, I mean, first of all, it, I, I agree. We need to get back to where this is not even something that we talk about. It's, it's, there used to be bipartisan agreement over it. You just raised the debt limit, right? Because this is money that's already spent. There aren't actually supposed to be negotiations over it because the money's already been spent. And so how that becomes Joe Biden's fault is unclear to me because the people who are raising the debt limit are Congress, right? So really what should happen is rather than have these, these negotiations, they should just raise the debt limit. The money's already been spent. The argument would be, Neemalika, <laughs> that um, they have leverage, House Republicans, and they, you know, look, it's just a fact that this country uh, spends yeah. much more than it takes in. It is also just a fact that in terms of just paying the interest on the debt, that's hundreds of hundreds of billions of dollars that the U.S. Or, or hundreds of millions of dollars that the U.S. is paying on debt instead of paying on education or whatever you want to spend it on. Um, so I guess I'm just representing the House Republican point of view here. This is an opportunity to force some cuts. I, I think that's right. Listen, they obviously voted to raise the debt ceiling uh, before, and they usually raise this argument of tying it to cuts when there's a Democratic president. There's a Democratic president. Uh, they're in control of the House. Uh, it seems like Biden came out of that meeting saying, we need to have a clean debt ceiling, but maybe there should be a separate talk about some of these cuts going forward. So we'll see uh, what happens, but they certainly have tons of leverage. What they don't have at this point is a clear sense of what they want to cut, right? It's not Medicare. It's not Social Security. It's like eliminating waste, fraud, and abuse, which, which every never mayor enough. runs yeah. on. They don't right? want to cut the popular thing. stuff. Yeah, they don't but. want to cut the, the popular stuff. So, you know, they've got to actually come to the table and, and be brave about what they actually yeah, want they to cut. Yeah, they also could, yeah. when they were in complete control of the government could have done cuts, too. But well, guess you know what? what? I asked a member of Congress about this, a Republican member yeah. of Congress. Who was it? It's Chris Stewart, I think, from Utah. He said he was very honest. He's like, Donald Trump had no interest in it. Yeah. He did not care about the debt. Right. Um, Trump blew through every previous spending record uh, that had ever been set except during World War II. And, and, and he was a huge spender. Of course, that, those records were set by Obama, who broke every other previous record. Yeah, Repu- Somebody needs to step in and say, okay, maybe let's get a bipartisan commission on Social Security, Medicare, and the debt, and, and try to do something that's similar to what they did with the base closing commission and somehow reach an agreement. So, Kirsten, Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, just introduced a bill to limit senators to serving two terms, but he is also currently running for his third term. Here's his defense of it. Take a listen. I think that Congress would work much better if every senator were limited to two terms, if every House member were limited to three terms. I've introduced a constitutional amendment to put that into the Constitution. But you're still running. And if and when it passes... If and when it passes, I will happily, happily comply. I've never said I'm going to unilaterally comply. 
<laughs> I mean, Ted Cruz never lets you down, does he? You know, um, it's, it's, that's crazy. But he's doing this because this has become kind of a MAGA thing. Marjorie Taylor Greene really likes mm-hmm. it. It's not going to happen. And so he's, he's basically carrying water for them to curry favor with them. But he is not going anywhere. There have been members of Congress, I should point out, who have actually yeah, walked the walk and, like, <laughs> stepped down after three terms. Yeah. Quinn, thanks so much. What Thank doing? you, Jake. Appreciate it. Okay, good. good everyone, uh, good, good to be here. Thank you so much. And I appreciate the Eagles cover. Yeah. Colors. That's right. Go uh, to my yeah. left, we want to show this a little a, a demonstration of support for the birds over there. Uh, coming up, the head of Russia's mercenary army takes to the sky, taking verbal shots at Ukraine's president. We're going to the front lines of this fight. Stay with us. You're looking at a new video just into CNN. Massive explosions in Vuladar, where Ukrainian forces claim they stopped a Russian assault as Ukraine braces for a major increase in Russian troops in the coming months. CNN's Fred Plekin sat down with the head of Ukraine's National Security Council at this pivotal time in Putin's brutal war. Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin taking to the skies, flying a combat aircraft challenging Ukraine's president to a dogfight. I landed. We bombed Bakhmut, he says. Tomorrow I'm boarding a MiG-29. If you desire, we'll meet in the sky. Ukraine acknowledges the Russians have made some gains around Bakhmut, but insists they're suffering catastrophic losses, the head of Ukraine's National Security Council tells The lack of shells, that is a significant disadvantage, he says, but in our favor, we are killing them at a ratio of seven times to one. Unfortunately, our men and women are dying there as well. Ukraine's entire eastern front has been heating up. The Russians deploying tens of thousands of troops mobilized late last year for what is expected to be a massive spring offensive. Even so, Ukraine's Security Council chief says his country is ready. We're concerned, he says, but I would stress that we are preparing together with our partners. Good preparations are being made now, so if the Russian offensive begins, it will be unsuccessful. But to turn the tide of this war, the Ukrainians say they need more long-range weapons to hit Russian supply lines and combat aircraft to win control of the skies. They're confident of getting both eventually. It's only a matter of time until we get F-16s, he says. They will definitely come. Unfortunately, in the meantime, we're losing our people while fighting for our independence. The Russians say they foiled a drone attack deep inside Russian territory, only about 140 miles from Moscow. The Ukrainians have promised not to use Western weapons to hit Russian territory, but Danilov says Ukraine will use its own. Regarding Russian territory, nobody prohibits us to destroy targets with weapons produced in Ukraine, he says. Do we have such weapons? Yes, we do. For the Ukrainians, it's a race against time to secure and develop weapons that will hold off what they call Russia's revenge. And Jake, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky tonight said that he met with his national security team and they talked specifically about the situation in Bakhmut, about Russia's efforts to try and encircle the Ukrainians there and what the Ukrainians can do to stop that. Now, they said that the Ukrainians need much more artillery also down there and certainly also a lot more artillery munitions to hold the Russians up. Jake. All right. CNN's Fred Plykin in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Coming up. Why would someone damage cages and steal exotic animals? Possible new answers in that mystery at the Dallas Zoo.
Finally, some possible answers in the string of mysterious incidents at the Dallas Zoo. Police say a man arrested last week might be responsible for stealing two tamarind monkeys and tampering with other habitats. CNN's Ed Lavendera talks to zookeepers who suspect there might be a larger motivation at play. The high-flying Gibbons apes are oblivious to the fact that their little corner of the Dallas Zoo is a crime scene that's garnered worldwide attention. For the humans at the zoo, it's been a nearly month-long nightmare. They broke into the building. Harrison Edel is the Dallas Zoo's executive vice president of animal care and welfare. He's showing us where the mysterious break-ins, escapes, possible murder, and animal abductions occurred. It started here in this enclosure, which is home to four Langer monkeys. Edel says they found a four-foot-high cut in the wire mesh. We also noticed that some of the climbing structure inside the habitat was broken, and it had literally collapsed, which made us think an animal larger than a langer had been in here. None of the monkeys escaped. A lot of us in in animal care at the zoo have gone to some really dark places in our minds in the last month. You can almost picture whoever was in there chasing these guys down. It must have been rather frantic for the animals. I can only imagine how scary that is for, for a langer to have a person in their space who's trying to aggressively grab them. Around the same time and just two exhibits away, the clouded leopard habitat was cut open. A female leopard named Nova walked right out, setting off what the zoo calls a code blue. The SWAT team rolled out here that morning. That's got to be terrifying. Yeah, I mean, SWAT team heard the word leopard and thought, leopard, leopard. High-tech drones were used to search for the 25-pound cat to no avail. That afternoon, two zoo employees standing about 30 yards away from Nova's habitat found her. One of them said to the other one, why is that squirrel so pissed off? And there's a squirrel in the tree barking. And down here in one of these cabinets, the leopard was curled up in a cabinet looking at them. Down here? There's the curator who said, why is the squirrel so upset? (laughs) Lisa Van Sleet, the zoo's mammal curator, called for help. And then a chase ensued. (laughs) But she's she's safe and sound now. She's safe and sound now. At first we thought maybe isolated incident. Somebody tried something and failed. It was just the beginning. A lappet-faced vulture named Pin was found dead. Dallas police said the rare bird had been wounded. And then last week, two rare emperor tamarind monkeys were taken from the zoo. They made a huge cut in this wall of mesh right here in order to get into the habitat. The one-pound monkeys were found the next day in this abandoned house about 15 miles away. Zoo officials say the monkeys were unharmed. That last incident led police to arrest 24-year-old Davian Irvin. He's been charged with six counts of animal cruelty and two counts of burglary to a building. But investigators say he is not currently charged in connection to the death of the vulture. My name's Joe Exotic and this is Sarge. Wildlife experts say the fascination with exotic animals is fueled by shows like Tiger King and social media influencers, creating an underground world of exotic animals as pets. It's a massive problem. Um, the, the globally, the illegal pet trade is, again, dr- driving many animals toward extinction. And we think of it oftentimes as a kind of other world problem. This is an opportunity to let people know that you know, animals need to be left alone in their homes. I'm going to sound so old when I say this, but it doesn't help that social media influencers are showing kids that it's cool to have this thing in my house. You think that that might be one of the motivations here? Just that that kind of influence? I do. I do. 
The suspect is being held on $25,000 bond. Zookeepers here say these incidents have been a profoundly disturbing gut punch, but what still looms over the zoo is why all of this happened. There's just no known motive yet, Jake. Ed Levender at the Dallas Zoo, thanks so much. Tune into our special coverage of President Biden's State of the Union address. That's tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Our coverage continues with Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room. Thanks for watching. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.